Hello and welcome back to the second part of the second episode of ISPP's Policy Cast. We are in conversation with Professor Rizzo from the University of California, Merced, on her paper "When Clients Exit: Breaking the Clientelist Feedback Loop." In the last episode, we discussed what exactly is clientelism, and also why does it occur. I will add the link to that episode in the show notes in case you want to hear it again. In this episode, we will discuss what was Professor Rizzo's intervention, and did it succeed in freeing people from the middlemen who restrict access to social security schemes? Tune in to find out. The argument that you uh, make in your paper is, of course, this that these uh, individuals wanting to access these schemes anyway have you know often limited know-how with regards to how to go about accessing them, right, from documentation to so on. And this, in some sense, increases the you know bureaucratic transaction costs, which results in the creation of this market of intermediaries and them getting dependent on them, and sort of the vicious cycle continues. Uh, so you try to you know find a way to solve this by creating these facilitators. Uh, so what was your intervention? Because you carry it out in 150 different localities. So how would you go about designing such a complex intervention? Because to me, it would seem that you know. Doing an experiment in 150 uh, different localities would also involve accounting for, you know, complex social political structures that may exist across the board. And, you know, being able to carry out such an exercise, just the logistics involved in that. So if you could tell us a bit more about that. It wasn't, it wasn't very easy. It wasn't very easy for, I, I did it as a, as a graduate student. Uh, one thing I'm maybe to, to sort of restate what you've just said is the, main, the key thing here to understand is that these bureaucratic, there are these bureaucratic transaction costs. You know, other people have understood them as sort of administrative burdens, bureaucratic uh, hurdles. Other people have called them red tape, right? But uh, more, I, I, what I think is a, is a better term in a, in a sense because because it's it, it can be understood, right, both from the from the citizens' perspective as well as what it 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 creates, what kind of market it creates, uh, or intermediation market. Uh, you know, these kinds of bureaucratic transaction costs are all costs that individuals face when trying to interact with the state, when trying to claim, make claims on the state, claims on social assistance programs, agricultural programs, uh, social welfare, what, what have you, right? And so um, the idea here was, well, I did most of my fieldwork right before doing this intervention, uh, sort of trying to figure out what were the main, um, main bureaucratic transaction costs for different populations. And it may be very different if you live in a city in an urban area than if you live in the in, in, in a very far away rural area. The kind of costs that you're going to have are going to be different. And so what I figured out was that if I concentrated right on this particular type of social benefits, state level social benefits, we talked about federal level, we talked about municipal level, um, state level are both most of them are both funded by the, the, the state budget, but also distributed by state representatives, right? And so, in principle, any individual can go to a state office, the state ministry of education, the state ministry of, of welfare, what, what have you, and ask, uh, ask for these benefits if they're eligible. The interesting part about uh, states, state-level social programs is that there still is a lot of them, way more um, than perhaps are needed. Uh, and also, a lot of them are some version of the same thing, uh, just sort of mixed around. The second thing is that 
in theory, again, they're fairly easy to claim. Most of them are have very broad eligibility criteria, and uh, you know, most of them are. You're think we're thinking about things like uh, scholarships. We're thinking about things like wheelchairs. Thinking about medical, some you know, medical uh, subsidies, subsidies for agriculture. These kind of fairly small um, social assistance, right? And fairly easy to get in principle, right? So that's why I focus on these kinds of programs because there's a lot of them. There's fairly they're fairly easy to to obtain. There doesn't require a lot of different documentation and etc. And I focus on rural areas because here's the the key part, right? One might think, well, if they're so easy to to, to claim, why are bureaucratic transaction costs so so high? And the answer to that is right that in rural areas. Bureaucratic transaction costs take a lot more in the form of information. People not having the information about the programs, about what programs exist in the first place, and how to obtain them. Uh, because of what we've talked about, because of this structure of, of, of distribution, of implementation of social programs and whatnot. And so on, with that in mind, this is why I selected this particular um, space to study these kinds of bureaucratic transaction costs. Um, and then the the next step was well how does how can one design an intervention that reduces these bureaucratic transaction costs? And here is where you know one can have different 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 options, right? One can think of well you know let's distribute information, let's uh, just sort of inform people of what there is, and uh, you know have them you know see what what kind of impact that has. However, information and a lot of you know, a lot of uh, political science research and uh, economics as well has has shown that when you only distribute information to individuals, mostly does not does not necessarily have a huge impact on how they um, you know, how they behave, and especially on on necessarily on, on take up take up of social programs. So, informed with this knowledge, I was like, okay, so there's there's there, there has to be something more than just giving people information, and that's where. The, the, the whole process of, of, of uh, finding, hiring, and training facilitators that could not only would not only provide information to individuals, which they're lacking for sure, but would also pr- contribute this bureaucratic know-how. And this is, you know, again, I go a lot more uh, in depth in, in in my book and in a, in a newer version of this of this of this paper as well, but. Basically, what that means is, you know, it's not only the, the procedural knowledge of how to do something, but also what, uh, what some people call the, 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 the tacit knowledge, right? The knowledge on how to approach, uh, bureaucracies, on how to talk to bureaucracies. If anybody here, you know, listening, I'm guessing you as well, have ever interacted with a bureaucracy, you know that you, you speak to, to the bureaucrat differently than you, you know, than you do to your, you know, to your, your family member, to your partner, to your friend. There are ways of interacting with the bureaucracy. And so this, the, the intervention, what it does is that it, it, it goes into this, um, half of these 150 communities, uh, where, uh, we, we, we went with my part, with a civil society organization called Participando por México, um, which is now called Nosotros, um, it, it changed names, but still the same people. We we went to each of these communities, each of the seventy five randomly selected communities, and we hired um, temporarily hired someone within the community 
that would receive this kind of special training. Training that would involve both knowing um, what kind of programs there were, how to access it, and also the the, the program the the training had a uh, a sort of practice by doing component. How would you interact with a bureaucrat who is not very helpful? How would you interact with a bureaucrat who is uh, rude, who does not want to listen to what you have to say? So a lot of these uh, this training involved also this what I call this tacit um, knowledge. And you're 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 totally right in 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 noting right that you know these these hundred and fifty communities they were paired up. Um, I paired them up with the most similar communities were paired up to create these these uh, this uh, seventy five pairs, right? So uh, even beforehand. Uh, control treatment and control, what we call these two, two different groups, right? The certified that got the, the the facilitator, and the ones that did not were already pretty similar on average. However, across these pairs, there's a lot of heterogeneity and a lot of uh, differences. Um, this, I mean, this is this was a, this was a challenge, uh, but you know, in many ways, in order to create a um, in order to to minimize the kind of potential issues that could arise from such a diverse group of 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 of, uh, of uh, towns of, of of villages, is that beforehand I did a lot of work trying to find communities that were very quite homogeneous. Um, this might be you know not great if you want to learn about how this heterogeneity you know affects this issue. But from a implementation perspective, precisely for what you're saying, you know, it is it is very beneficial. Trying to understand, trying to find um, uh, communities that were somehow homogeneous, that were comparable to each other, and that would somehow uh, have less of the potential problems that could arise. Uh, so, for instance, a lot of the sample was avoiding urban urban areas. Right, urban areas are considerably more. Uh, have considerably more complex sort of political ecosystems that are unpredictable, right? Um, there are some other things that I that I, that I took care of that were you know, that were less uh, minimizing the issues, but they did have issues in the end. There were issues, not as much as I expected, but uh, we took a lot of care in the actual implementation of the of the of the of the uh, intervention to be very respectful of local authorities to be very clear about what we were doing. We were there for a period of time, very short period of time, to do this intervention. It was a we called it a pilot intervention because, in a sense, that's what it was. Um, uh, the, 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 the facilitator was very was given very strict uh, strict instructions, supervised a lot. So there were, and you can find all of these things in my in my website. Actually, I have like a a, a separate kind of. A, tab in my website where I describe all of the protocols that we used in the implementation precisely to minimize the problem that you were highlighting. And so then, uh, so once your intervention happens, this facilitator sort of, you know, is in some sense assisting people where they're not being able to access services, or at least, you know, writing that letter, which gets them access, which then gets them put that, put on, you know, the board of a bureaucrat saying that, you know, so-and-so person has requested for a service. But in that case, I mean, there would also be some moral issues that would come in. For example, how would you avoid a scenario where, you know, the facilitator ends up becoming that client list mediator, uh, you know, and, you know, they are, they are sort of, you know, 
replaying that same quid pro quo exchange that was happening earlier in some sense. And the other thing is uh, with the experiment, how would you manage the ex citizen expectation that you know now because they know that they have somebody who's not necessarily part of that exchange, they may feel you know this uh, belief that you know okay I'm going to get that social security that I've applied for. So how do you manage these moral issues in the experiment? No, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, there's a couple of a couple of things in this question. Um, maybe I, I like to start with the managing expectations. Managing expectations is a is a, is a key uh, concern for anybody who's doing any kind of research like this. Manage, I mean, it doesn't have to be experimental. You know, any kind of person who's doing qualitative research has to manage expectations of research subjects. And so this was you know a very important part of our of our training and was reinforced then by uh, we had a supervising structure that would go into each of these 75 communities uh, once every week or week and a half to verify that, A, expectations were not being created that were not going to be met. Um, and we were very clear about saying that, you know, the, inter the, the, the intermediary, the, the, the facilitator in this case, uh, was not there to provide benefits, but was there to help and uh, support the process of requesting a benefit. And in the end, the individual themselves who want the individuals themselves who wanted that benefit would would write the letter would write the the claim, uh, and they would also get the official receipt from the uh, ministry, right, that they had received the claim. So uh, the facilitator was not there to say, well, yeah, we're gonna get you this, we're going to uh, bring you this this stuff, but he was there to or she was there to uh, ensure that the claim was made. So expectations were. You know, we're, 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 we're done in this way. The other part is about creating new, uh, leaderships. There's two answers to this. This one was practical, um, in, in, in the sense that this intervention, uh, you know, took place for three, three months. A super tiny amount of time in the, you know, obviously in the histories of many of these places, but also compared to many, many similar interventions. Right? So, the idea was then again to emphasize that this was a, a pilot study, and that makes it even more interesting that the actual results that I do find. But that also minimized the potential exposure that that these individuals that we hired could have um, under our sponsorship, the sponsorship of this of this uh, organization. Um, where we also took other measures like sort of re reinforcing the fact that we were not from a political party. That we're not attached to any kind of political or governmental entity, etc. So there were those kinds of things. That having said that, though, we do find, and I do find qualitatively, that these individuals that worked for 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 us, uh, which in the end uh, ended up being seventy four. One of them dropped out in the middle of it. Did become people who became a lot more articulate in their in their in their way of expressing themselves. They had been for three months or so, uh, you know, interacting with more individuals. And many of them did become people who wanted to be more engaged in their communities. Is that a bad thing? Uh, or is that creating new leaderships? I don't think so. I think it's a, it's generally uh, desirable that people who have an, an, an inkling to being engaged become more engaged. Uh, Follow-up uh, sort of visits have, have shown that, you know, Become, them becoming intermediaries did not really happen in the way that uh, perhaps you're mentioning. 
So I'm pretty confident to say that uh, we did not create new client list intermediaries in this, you know, in this intervention. So in terms of, you know, collecting the data for, you know, how the intervention fared, uh, what was that process like? So you do the intervention and then how do you measure what its impact has been? Right. Well, the, the results data was gathered through a survey. Um, so in the 150 communities, so 150 communities constituted the, the, the study itself, right? And uh, 75 of them, like I said, were control communities, 75 were treated communities. Um, and the, and the sur- there was two surveys, one done before the intervention, which we call a baseline survey, uh, done in all 150 communities. And then there was a endline survey where we basically uh, interviewed that those same individuals. Yeah, basically that was most of the of the collection of of, of outcomes. There also I also collected outcomes uh, administratively. That means um, how many many uh, claims were made at the municipal level. We can't do it at the at the at the local level. And more importantly, I also collected uh, electoral results, which are not in this version of the paper, but will be in the in in in, in the future versions. Um, electoral results three years after the fact. So there's a different. There's also there's also some you know qualitative data that I collected. There's a bunch of different different things that I tried to complement into this. Um, yeah, to the data and the outcome collection. So, so as you said, you know, so now we've got the setup, so heading to sort of the results part of it. So in terms of the results, wanted to focus on four particular things. Uh, one wanted to begin with this idea of, you know, avenues of claim making, because earlier we briefly discussed that, you know, it would appear that uh, these intermediaries happen to be the only people that they can reach out to to make that claim. Um, so how how did that change? Right. So this is, this is a... a important here because prior to doing the, the intervention, right, if you think about introducing a um, an additional individual who's going to be helping people make these requests, you could think of different possibilities, right? You could think perhaps, um, you know, people are going to shift, right, their allegiance they're not going to ask the, the the traditional broker or the Comisario Municipal anymore. They're going to start sort of asking this new individual, right? Um, eh, or alternatively, which I think is much more reasonable to expect, they might just sort of start using both people, right? There's another person who can help me with getting what I want. Why would I, you know, sort of not use that person? Especially that person doesn't um, seem to be, you know, sort of threatening in any way, right? So what, what I find is more of this second um, second case, where people are actually complementing the avenues of claim making, right? Their traditional ways of claim making, they're complementing it with this new avenue, which is you know, this facilitator who is helping them write these these, these claims, write these these requests. Um, and I see this in the in 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 the data, and I think that this is this is. A, this is to be expected, right? Why would individuals, why would citizens just give up their traditional way of doing things, especially especially in uh, three months' time? What's actually surprising is that they do take up this avenue, right? There's a, there's, there's a demand for other ways, alternative ways of obtaining social benefits, right? And I think this is, this is significant um, because what, that, what that's telling us is that 
uh, people are willing, right? They're, it's not like there's some, you know, sort of uh, strong loyalty to only do things a certain way. Um, people are willing and are, are 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 able to to diversify their ways of claiming of claiming uh, benefits. And in the process, I argue. They not only diversify their possibility and they, and they perhaps increase their possibilities of, of obtaining things, they also learn different things. They also learn how to interact with the government in different ways. And I think that is valuable in and of itself. Um, you know, having different ways of, 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 of understanding and interacting with, with government. So that's kind of what I, what I find with regards to the avenues of, of claim making. There is an effect uh, you know, on the amount of claims being done. There's more claims being done, but also these claims are done through uh, through and through non-clientelistic avenues. Mind you, uh, most of these non-clientelist avenues are are through the facilitator. So there's a mechanical effect there, right? The facilitator exists only in in, in traded communities, so uh, you will see more so there than than in control groups. But that doesn't negate the, 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 the interpretation of the complementarity of avenues of claim making. So in terms of sort of the second, uh, you know, area for the results, one is, of course, you know, the idea of, you know, attitudes towards client, uh, clientelism itself. And in that uh, scenario, there were sort of three ideas that I wanted to explore. One is, of course, you know, what is the impact of the intervention on people who were close to an intermediary? Uh, secondly, you know, what are, because in your paper, you mentioned there are two scenarios. One is, of course, you know, the vote buying and the other is sort of, you know, the social welfare uh, that happens, uh, the social welfare scenario. So what are the differences in results that you find in both of those? And thirdly, is there also a general change with regards to, you know, the moral attitudes that poor people have towards clientelism? I think that this is at the core of the of the paper and of my work is, um, Yes, we observe a behavioral change. People request more things. This is this is this is interesting. I think this is this is great. But I think the most interesting part, at least to me, is that there is a change in attitudes towards clientelist relationships and clientelist forms of engaging with government. Now, mind you, one thing to note is that in our intervention, we were very very strict. Zero mention of anything political, anything related to uh, clientelism, vote buying, nothing like that was ever. We never allowed that to, to become a part of the vocabulary that the um, that the facilitators used. Uh, one to protect them from you know being accused of falsely accusing people and any kind of uh, any kind of complexities with like saying uh, saying things like this. With that in mind, right, the intervention was all about um, facilitating requests to government uh, of social benefits. And so that we observe then when we ask people, there's a couple of questions that are, you know, they're available, uh, you can read them more in detail, but one of the questions uh, that, I, that, I, that I like a lot is a question about indebtedness, about feeling indebted, and we were talking about this in the, earlier in the conversation, feeling indebted to an individual who helped you obtain an entitlement, right? How much should you should you reciprocate to uh, to the political party who provide you with a social benefit? Right. The other questions that went into sort of norms and understanding of clientelism were about 
uh, how wrong or, or you know, how how wrong people felt certain exchanges were, particularly how wrong they thought you know, uh, giving giving people money or 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 goods in exchange for their votes. So when asked these these two types of questions, you see there's a huge what I think for intervention of three months again sort of emphasizing this part. It's a big change, negative change. So uh, people are much less likely to feel indebted, right, to a political party for receiving a good or a benefit. They're, they're much less likely to, to accept, to tolerate uh, sort of vote-buying um, vote exchanges. Right? And so this is, this is, this is, uh, you know, this is significant, right? And what you were what we were talking about, right, that goes goes back to how these changes would reflect conditional on how your relationship to 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 a previous broker was. What the logic behind that was is well, within a community, within a community that has a, a client-based broker, those people who are closest or who feel closest to this this broker to this intermediary uh, might. Have a different, um, or might be affected differently by such an intervention. And so, what I what I find is that those people, right, who um, who have pre-existing sort of trust and 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 connections to to the broker, right, they 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 vary less, so they 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 change their their levels of indebtedness uh, differently. Than those who were not tied before. Now, I want to sort of uh, you know, pause in this because there's these re- this, this, these these results are somewhat noisy. They're not necessarily the most clean cut results, and uh, I think it calls for more sort of exploring more how these networks within communities work. People who are networked into an existing supply uh, or 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 networked to to the to to to, to, to a local broker. Local intermediary. How do they? How does that 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 change how they're going to evaluate then uh, sort of clientelist clientelism and how they're going to feel about clientelism? How that's going to affect their future behaviors? I think I think we need to explore that a bit more. But at least my my results are suggestive, right? That moral views about indebtedness uh, will change sort of more so if people have pre-existing relationships with brokers. If they have something pre-existing to change, they will change. Um, so I think this is significant in that in that way, right? People who have some positive views, some 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 views about um, about these intermediaries are going to be more likely to be changing their views. Uh, which which makes which makes sense, um, I think, and it's you know it's also it's also important in considering how these norms change over time. So the other, the third idea that I wanted to explore in terms of the results is, of course, you know, how would a previous experience that the individuals may have had with regards to making a claim, how does that come into play with regards to, you know, how the intervention pans out? Right. Um, so again, sort of um, prefacing this with the fact that these results are a little noisy. But what what happens is when uh, the, the tr- some treatment effects, so people who have not gone, Okay, to uh, who have not gone to the municipality before are more likely to make claims. 
Um, this is you know, the sort of main result with regards to sort of previous claim making that I, that I find, and this this makes this makes sense uh, in the sense that people who have not gone to the municipality before previously may have not gone for uh, because precisely because it has been too costly. Um, they didn't know exactly how. They did not have perhaps the opportunity, and so what I find is sort of consistent with consistent with this idea that. You know, when one reduces the bureaucratic transaction costs involved in interacting with the, with the with government, right? We also observe a larger change in their behavior, in their claim making behavior. Um, so, in that sense, right, it's it's important to, to to also understand within within community dynamics. Sort of going back to this same point that I was making a minute ago. Who are who are the individuals within a community that are a connected to a local broker, to a local uh, client list intermediary, or what have you? Also within that community, who are the people who have much more practice, much more experience in interacting with with government, and understanding how these kinds of interventions might have a different impact on on them? In the case of what I find is people who have gone to the municipality before. Right, are more likely to take take up the 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 the, the intervention. Uh, so that gives me a sign that in in many ways it it is uh, this intervention is working. It, it is actually reducing the cost for people who have not had a lot of experience with government before. And so the fourth area which I wanted to explore is which you mentioned a little while earlier. There's sort of this level of indebtedness that people may feel because if I you know go to an intermediary to you know get. I know certain social security benefit, then I might feel an obligation to sort of do whatever that intermediary asks of me. So in that case, how does your what does it, what does your intervention show? For example, when I have a higher level of indebtedness versus when I have a lower level of indebtedness. That that is an outcome that that that, that I measure. So the level of, of indebtedness is a is an outcome that is measured both in the baseline survey and in the uh, end line survey. But what I do find descriptively. Right, and this is just looking at data from the baseline. And what I find is that um, people who are affiliated, who feel loyalty to a political party, might feel more indebted uh, to a political party for their um, for helping them. Right, and it's also very correlated with how strongly one identifies with a political party. Again, this makes sense, right? And this is all based on uh, on baseline, so before the intervention happened. So again, this makes sense. How do we understand these feelings of indebtedness? It's those people who are most connected to political parties, perhaps who were socialized. This is also a, an argument that is that is out there. Uh, who are socialized into understanding social entitlements as gifts, uh, and this is crucial, right? The understanding of social entitlements as gifts instead of entitlements is what allows. This feeling of indebtedness to 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 persist, um, and and this feeling of indebtedness that, in the in, in a way under underlies these, these norms, right? Which is in a sense a norm. Feeling indebtedness for someone who helps you, uh, you know, they, they they support uh, in many ways this sort of client clientelist structures and uh, their functioning and their survival in in, in many of these uh, of these places. So that's how I validated um, indebtedness, but also. Interestingly, how how I explained its its relevance in in these in these communities. So you know, once your intervention happens, uh, what after that? Once the intervention is over, 
do people revert back to their old behavior or does it make sense for you know the government to you know create a new position which essentially plays the same role of a facilitator what's next what happened after the intervention is um more practically speaking with regards to me is that i tried to present these results to the the current government government in yucatan and although i was you know sort of you know, somebody heard me here and there i kind of was kind of ignored for a bit um interestingly about 6 months after the intervention i realized that the government website that is supposed to promote all these of these uh, all these social programs had changed its design and strangely enough it looked very much like the materials that we had used in our intervention so i don't i can't exactly say whether there's a connection there but uh, there was an attempt right to uh, facilitate the information at least in their website uh more interestingly i do think that there has been a huge discussion in mexico in the past few years uh about intermediaries right in fact the president the fir- one of the first things that he came out to say back in 2018 was i'm going to get rid of all of the political intermediaries that are impeding the direct connection of the government and citizens um and he has been doing so um progressively sort of a what he believes is eliminating political intermediaries uh and what he believes is closing the gap right between citizens and 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 government understanding the role of intermediaries goes beyond uh you know sort of clientelism and uh understanding local local politics but goes into more broadly right uh how how a country like Mexico organizes the way that they interact with citizens right and one of the most proximate ways in which they do is through welfare right? in all countries welfare uh, education health right social social services and so the fact that 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 Mexico and many other countries as well but uh, talking about Mexico here has re rebooted their social scheme says a lot about how both government is understanding this relationship but also how we're going to start understanding this relationship going forward um do these changes in how social social uh, assistance is provided do these changes actually bring people closer or is government just substituting one system of mediation with another perhaps another that is closer to them um So this is why I think uh, you know I think the main lesson to learn from this project is not necessarily to tell governments hey you need to you know you need to give people more information you need to put your own intermediaries there but rather perhaps to 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 inform civil society right on avenues that I think are, have been proven to 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 help people both make claims but also understand government in a different way. And so I think that uh you know more, most of the civil society organizations out there who are working in, uh, in sort of development work and trying to promote uh, you know local uh, uh welfare and development can 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 folk or can look at this work and and think on how do we instead of creating new projects, new social programs, right? how do we use what is already there and and instead sort of work on how 
how citizens understand uh, their governments, uh, and perhaps you know, with time, make that relationship more accountable, make that relationship uh, more more transparent, and also in in, in many ways uh, strengthen citizen autonomy in that relationship. Also, sort of building up on one of the points that you uh, mentioned is that it doesn't that the, the results of your paper do not necessarily mean that you know the government should hire more of its own intermediaries. Uh, but even then, uh, in the paper, you do a back of the envelope calculation, and you end up saying that you know it'll still be cheaper to do that. I mean, I'm going to be totally candid here. Given the the recent uh, the recent developments in Mexico, which basically basically attempted to do this restructuring of of intermediate uh, or intermediary positions i would have to include in that calculation the cost the political costs of creating a new structure of intermediaries right? you know i don't know what the net effect is i'm completely honest what is the net effect of restructuring an existing corrupt a uh, and 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 perverse uh, system of intermediaries of all these in, all these individuals that are profiting from from misinformation from from lack of information from transaction costs. Um, what is the net effect of 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 restructuring this of re rebooting it of, of of substituting it with others on social welfare? It's it's hard. Um, it's hard to really really know what the net effect in the end is going to be. Uh, but I do see. I do still think that the takeaway from this paper is not to say governments, you need to put a lot of intermediaries of your own. You need to substitute these people. Um, I think that the the broader teaching here is I think more directed towards civil society organizations. What can we actually do, right, to change the idea that entitlements are gifts that need to be reciprocated? Uh, how, what can we actually do to increase citizen participation with the state? Um, and sort of the idea is, again, using what is already there. Right? And possibly, I'm not saying that what's already there is good. Like I said before, many of these social programs are, you know, go uneval are not evaluated. They, they don't have any rules of operation. They're super corrupt. They're super uh, 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 obscure. But uh, at the same time, uh, you know, this is what is there, right? And so while on the one hand there's people combating corruption from the top, uh, I think this is a way of uh, at least engaging engaging citizens from from below. And this is something that we can do. Uh, you know, there are a lot of civil society organizations out there that are working at the local level. Um, and, you know, it's not expensive, like like the calculation at the end of the paper suggests. It's definitely not expensive. So why not uh, you know, increase the way that we, or uh, increase the effort in, in how, how we think about how citizens interact with the bureaucracy, um, increase or, or, or try to strengthen citizen autonomy in interactions with the bureaucracy with the hope, and I think some evidence here, that that will itself empower citizens to uh, demand better programs, better spend, uh, expenditure, uh, Better understanding of how the bureaucracy works, and hopefully, um, you know, complement all of these sort of top-down approaches to combating what's currently wrong uh, with many, many social uh, welfare schemes around the world. 
And because we've run out of time, there's one question which I did have at the end. So while I was reading the paper, to me, one of the, one of the benefits of doing this podcast is that I get to, you know, see what good writing is like. And when I was reading it, you know, there's a, in your paper, I found there's a very healthy mix of sort of anecdotal evidence with sort of, you know, bills upon, you know, the theory or the math so to say that you're using so you know for people listening to the podcast especially those who you know want to pursue a career in academia and you know want to be you know writing research papers you know what what would you say is a good way to go about it what are the best practices that you would say you recommend people follow that's a that's a, that's a tough one uh, i guess you know be not, not, i'm not a native english speaker so actually writing is pretty you know, it's not doesn't come easily for for me especially in english um I do feel that uh, I do feel that illustrating complex ideas with uh, anecdotal or um, or qualitative evidence helps helps a lot and uh, helps more people some more so than others right um, but I do think it's valuable in in sort of not only in the writing stage but also in the in the in the research stage uh, talking. People. If your research is about people, then talking to people is important, right? Uh, that should go without saying, but you know, one would be surprised about how much uh, it, it doesn't happen. So, in in many ways, I think that you know, I guess the the, the advice that I would give is, you know, uh, when there are concepts that don't pass the the grandma test, the grandma test being, you know, if your grandmother can't understand them, there's something wrong wrong with the way you're doing. Not with the concept itself, and not with your grandmother. So, sort of trying to 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 to, to be clear uh, and, and communicating these these complex ideas, which I hope maybe uh, maybe I didn't do so well in this podcast, but I hope I did to some extent um, more so in the paper. Uh, I guess that would be one piece of advice I could give on that. Uh, no, I could surely say that in terms of another you know, way that we went with the podcast. I thought this was really. Uh, well uh, structured in terms of with the ideas and you know the way we went about it but I want to say thank you so much for giving us the time uh, and to talk for talking to us about this uh, extremely relevant paper which uh, in my personal opinion is I think you know you could replicate these studies even in India and a lot of these other countries and you would find similar results as what I'm assuming uh, but once again thank you so much uh, and for the people listening to the podcast, we'll of course be putting in Professor uh, Rizzo's paper in the show notes, uh, as well as a link to the website. So you can go check out her work. And yeah, thank you so much once again for joining us, Professor Rizzo. Thank you so much for, for the invitation. This was a, a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I hope to see you soon. <laughs>